You know, over the years, as I have talked to people uh, about matters of faith, I've noticed that many people's view of God is based not on who God actually is, but on who they want God to be. They put their idea of God together the way that kids put Lego together. They, they say, well, I can accept a God who's like this. But I cannot, in fact, I flat out reject a God who's like that. They don't want to know and worship the God who is. No, they want a God who makes them feel good and who fits their worldview and their lifestyle. They want a God made after their image. Well, in Paul's day, many people, including Jewish people, had a hard time understanding and accepting the idea that God is gracious. They had no problem accepting a holy and a just God who rewards the good and punishes the bad, but they simply refused to believe in a God who blesses and is gracious to people who don't deserve it. And so in Romans 9, the apostle uh, goes back to the basics. He realizes the people of his day are reacting negatively to God's grace because they have an incomplete understanding of God's sovereignty. And so he spells out five truths about the sovereignty of God that they need to not only understand but also accept. And the first one is this. God's sovereignty means that God has the right to choose who he will work through to accomplish his purposes. I spent most of the message last time focusing on this, and so I'm not even going to try to summarize it. If you want to fully understand chapter 9, and you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to go on our church website, look under sermons, and take in part one of Romans 9. So first of all, God's sovereignty means that God has the right to choose who he will work through to accomplish his purposes. Secondly, God's sovereignty means that God has the right to bless whoever he wishes to accomplish his kingdom purposes. In verse 14, we read this. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now when Paul says, what then shall we say? What he's really referring to are the previous verses which talk about God choosing Jacob rather than Esau to accomplish his purposes. And of course, when we read this, we find ourselves questioning the fairness and the justice of God. Well, let's look at this a little bit closer, shall we? The question raised here is, did God do something wrong? Did he do something unjust when he chose to extend mercy and to accomplish his purposes through Jacob rather than Esau? Well, at first glance, it may appear that way. But here's the thing. Mercy by definition, or grace by definition, is receiving something that you do not deserve. 
Notice in verse 16 it says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You see, neither Jacob or Esau deserve to receive the mercy of God. They, neither of them deserved to be chosen and to be blessed by God. And therefore, God was under no obligation to choose either of them. Mercy is never an obligation because it is undeserved. For example, after this service, if out of the goodness of his heart, a man named Bill, and you're all going to be walking around looking for Bill after the service, but if a man named Bill gave 10 of you $100, would the rest of you judge Bill for being unjust or unfair because he did not also give all of you $100? Well, you might feel that way. But the reality is, Bill is not obligated to bless all of you with $100 just because he felt led to bless 10 of you with $100. In fact, he's not obligated to give anyone $100. And therefore, by blessing 10 people, Bill was not doing anything unfair or unjust. Well, in the same way, God did not do anything unjust or unfair when he extended mercy and chose to bless and to use Jacob to accomplish his purposes through. As our sovereign God, he has the right to bless, empower, and to work through whoever he wants to. And Paul reinforces this down in verse 20. This is what we read there. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now Paul is making two points here. First he says, God has a right to bless who he wants to bless. He's not answerable to anyone for what he does. When we say, well, God... You're just not just. You're just not fair. You're just not right in this matter. You realize when we make that kind of an accusation, we're making ourselves greater than God. In essence, we're saying, I'm the standard of judgment, not you, God. I know better than you do. But think about the implications of each of us being the standard of what's right or wrong. One implication is we'd have total and complete anarchy in our society. Let me give you one little example of what I mean by that when I talk about anarchy. Let's say that you and me and 20 other people are approaching an intersection from four different directions. And of course, there is a traffic light there. As we approach the intersection, my standard of judgment says a red light means stop. Your standard of judgment says a red light means go. Someone else's standard of judgment is a red light means slow. So whose standard is right? 
Imagine the absolute chaos and carnage that would take place when we all come to that intersection and that traffic light. Now apply this simple scenario to hundreds of other uh, areas of life where most of us have different truths and have different standards and you can see how we can have a complete breakdown as a society, which of course is already happening, is it not? In which most people reject God's truth, make up their own truth, their own standards based on what works best for them and the way they want to live. And of course, as more and more people reject God and do their own thing, this is a recipe for anarchy and chaos. So let's not delude ourselves. God is God and we're not. He's the creator, we're his creation. He's the potter, we're the clay. Paul says if a potter, for example, takes a lump of clay and uses half of it to make a beautiful vase for the family room and uses the other half to make an ordinary vase for the laundry room, no one questions the potter's sense of justice or fairness. It's his prerogative to do so. But you see, we protest and we say, well, we're not clay. We're human beings with feelings and wills. And of course, we understand that. That's true. In the scriptures, we see God treating us as a father treats his child. But remember, Paul is talking... Remember, Paul is using this analogy of the potter and the clay not to illustrate how God relates to us. No, he's talking about God's right to do as he pleases. And we may not like the potter-clay analogy, but think about the way that we treat plants and animals. Don't you have the right to dig plants up and move them around wherever you like? Don't you have the right to keep your cat indoors and spoil her rotten while keeping your dog in a cold garage? Your reasoning, by the way, makes no sense to me, especially the part about keeping your cat indoors and letting her lay around all day while you work. But my point is, we exercise that kind of sovereignty. And if we exercise that kind of delegated authority, then why does the creator of the universe not have the right to exercise this kind of sovereignty? If he chooses to bless someone more than someone else or work more powerfully through one individual than another, who are we to question him? Which leads us to the second and what I believe is the more important point that Paul's making through this analogy of the potter and the clay. And that is, God blesses people differently for a purpose. And again, that purpose is that his spiritually lost kids might come into right relationship with himself through those of us he chooses and blesses. That is his passionate desire. Let me explain it to you this way. Let's say that one of your children rejects you. 
rebels against everything that you stand for, leaves home, refuses to talk to you. Now, as a parent, if that were my child, I can't think of anything that would weigh heavier on my heart. I can't think of anything that I would be more passionate about resolving. Now, as a parent, wouldn't it bless you if your other children were to surround you and to say, Dad, we care about our sister too. We hurt like you do. And we long for her return. We just want you to know that we're available to do whatever it is you need us to do to bring our sister back home. On the other hand, wouldn't it hurt you? Wouldn't it grieve you? If instead of sharing your concern for your lost daughter, they came to you time and time again complaining and upset with you because you gave one of them a little more money than the other or because you gave one of them an opportunity that you didn't give the others. Wouldn't it grieve you if they were always comparing themselves with each other, grumbling about, you know, how others, uh, how the others have it way better than they do, rather than joining you in prayer for and seeking to find your lost daughter. Now, church, we need to understand that our God's consuming passion is to seek and to save his spiritually lost kids. And so he chooses and he blesses his spiritual children to be his channels of love and influence in the lives of people who need the Lord. See, God has wired me up to impact certain people. And he's wired you up to reach people that I could never reach. He's given us different talents and giftings and money and circumstances for a purpose. And that is to use what he's given to us to introduce people to Jesus. When we spend what God has given to us almost entirely on ourselves and for our enjoyment. And we don't invest the time God's given to us, the talent, the financial resources he's given to us. We don't invest those things in that impact God's lost kids for eternity. We are grieving our Lord because we're misusing what he has blessed us with and the very reason he gave it to us in the first place. We're missing the whole point of why we're still here and not in heaven. I mean, when you committed your life to Christ, assuming that you've done that, when you committed your life to Christ, have you ever wondered why God didn't immediately take you to heaven? I mean, it would make sense. You know, my life's right with God. Let's go be with him for eternity. I mean, why did he leave you and me here? The main reason we're still here is the same reason Jesus came to this planet.
And that is to join him in seeking and saving his spiritually lost kids. Our primary purpose for being here is not to be comfortable. It is, to be, it is not to be admired or to be successful in the eyes of man. No, it is to be faithful to God's mission. Make no mistake, if your Christian life is lethargic, if it's unfulfilling, if it is unsatisfying, if your marriage is on life support, if your children's lives are boring... If your small group is uninspiring and you're just going through the motions, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, is because you aren't serious about the mission that God has called us to. And so says Paul, God has a right to bless whoever he wants to bless to accomplish his purposes or his mission. Thirdly, God's sovereignty means He has the right to have mercy on whom he wants and to harden the heart of whom he wants. Look at verse 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, do you find yourself kind of taking a deep breath after hearing that? Well, let me backtrack and just tell you briefly. Pharaoh was worshipped as God in Egypt. He considered himself to be God. And he was the king of the most powerful nation in the world. And God raised up Pharaoh, or he chose Pharaoh, for a purpose. God's purpose was to bring glory to himself by displaying his life-changing power in Pharaoh. Now, at first glance, we're bothered by this because we wonder, did God totally control Pharaoh? Was Pharaoh just a puppet that God put into place in order to display his power and let all the other nations know that the God of Israel is God? Many people wonder the same thing about Judas Iscariot. Was he just a puppet the way that Pharaoh was to accomplish God's purposes? Well, the short answer to that question is no. Pharaoh was not a puppet who had no choice or say in how things played out, and neither was Judas. As Ashwin pointed out last week in Exodus, in the Exodus series, God did not make Pharaoh do anything that he wasn't already doing or thinking. Some like to think that Pharaoh was a really nice guy. And then one day, God decided to turn his heart cold and evil. To accomplish his purposes. But that is not true. You study the life of Pharaoh and the reign of Pharaoh, and you're going to find that he enslaved the Israelites, he forced them to work under inhumane conditions, and he sought to wipe them out through infanticide. Pharaoh had a hard, a hard, rebellious, callous heart even before he was challenged to let the Israelites go. 
Now, yes, we do read in Exodus that at some point, God did harden Pharaoh's heart, but not until after Pharaoh had deliberately hardened his own heart against God time and time again. In other words, Pharaoh rejected God first, and then knowing the direction of his heart, God hardened his heart to continue to show the rest of the world that he is God and that Pharaoh is not. Now, <coughs> excuse me, when we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we think that meant that God made Pharaoh's heart evil, that God made Pharaoh do something that he didn't want to do. But that is not what God did. That is not what the scriptures refer to when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Let me explain what I mean. In Romans 1, Paul essentially says, when people ignore God, defiantly resist or replace God with counterfeit gods, and they continue to live ungodly and wicked lives, there comes a time when God gives them over. In other words, God allows people who have pushed him away to have their own way, to do what they want to do, and of course to live with the consequences of their choices. Well, that is exactly what God did with Pharaoh when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God revealed himself to Pharaoh. He poured out his grace on him. He was patient with Pharaoh. Every plague was an opportunity for Pharaoh to wake up, to humble himself and say, okay, all right, enough already. You know, I get it. You're clearly God and I'm not. But instead of his heart being softened, his heart grew harder with each plague. He kept resisting God. And after the fifth plague, God turned him over. God hardened his heart. He gave Pharaoh what he chose, what he wanted to do. And so God didn't create Pharaoh's hard heart. He simply allowed Pharaoh to go his own way in the direction that he was already determined to go. Now, a question that people typically ask at this point is, if God is able to save everyone, why doesn't he? Paul's people, the Jews, undoubtedly ask this question. I mean, if the Jews are God's chosen people, why doesn't he save them all? Well, for the same reason that God didn't ultimately save Pharaoh. Like I said a moment ago, I believe that God poured out his grace on Pharaoh. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at verse 17. God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
Notice God did not make Pharaoh king of Egypt in order to make a fool of him. No. This passage says that God's intention from the beginning to make Pharaoh king, and I quote, was so that I might, this is God speaking, that I might display my power. Where? To the world? No. God said he made Pharaoh king so that I might display my power in you. In you, Pharaoh. You see, God wanted to display his life-changing power to Israel and to the world by changing Pharaoh's heart and his life. I mean, think about it. If Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the ancient world, would have put his trust in the God of Israel, denounced all of the counterfeit gods that the Egyptians worshipped, and worshipped the true God, for all the Israelites and the rest of the ancient world to see firsthand. And as a result, Pharaoh would have freely let the Israelites go. And there would have been no need to have a standoff with Pharaoh or for the plagues. Do you think the miracle that God wanted to perform in Pharaoh's heart and life would have displayed God's power any less than the plagues did? I think that the most powerful king on the planet doing a spiritual 180, having complete change of heart, would have displayed God's power to Israel and the world in an equally powerful way. All that to say is I believe that God loved Pharaoh. He truly wanted to see him repent, to change his mind, to put his trust in God. And I say that on the authority of the verse I just read in Romans 9, 17, but also on the authority of John 3, 16, which says, for God so loved the world... That's everyone. And also on the authority of 2 Peter 3.9, which says, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, I don't have time to unpack verse 23 and, uh, 22 and 23 here in Romans 9, but if I was to summarize it, it would be like this. God has the right to pour out his wrath on those who defiantly resist him, like Pharaoh did. But he is patient. He gives people opportunity after opportunity to change their mind, to repent, which proves that evil people like Pharaoh are not made evil by God. God bears with them. He is patient with them, with them, wanting all people to repent. In verse 24 to 29, Paul quotes Hosea and Isaiah to reinforce the truth that God has always been a God who blesses, who extends mercy and grace to all people, Jews, Jews and Gentiles alike, and invites those 
who do not deserve grace to come and put their trust in him. God wants everyone to come to repentance. And so he pours out his grace to every person, even as he did to Pharaoh. And he calls us, and he tries to get our attention in various ways. And when we respond to his call or his grace, Romans 8.30, Paul says, God justifies us, meaning we're forgiven, we're cleansed, we become his forever friend. God does it all through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we need to receive his gift of grace by faith. Now, sadly, Pharaoh didn't humble himself. He didn't respond to God in that way. Rather, with each display of of God's power through the plagues, he dug his heels in deeper. His heart grew harder and colder toward God. And yes, God could have stopped him. He could have. He could have tried yet another time after the fifth plague to get his attention, to wake him up spiritually, perhaps by doing something dramatic like grabbing him by the collar and knocking him off his camel the way, remember, that he knocked the Apostle Paul, who was called Saul at the time, off his high horse. He could have done that. But God didn't. Not after the fifth plague. God extended his mercy another time for Paul, who who was Saul at the time. He was persecuting Christians. But he didn't extend mercy another time to Pharaoh. Why? Well, I really don't know. And I'm not sure anyone does. But verse 18 gives us a clue. Paul writes this, Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now listen really carefully. When Paul says God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, he's not saying that God's first step is to give grace to some people and not to others. No, this verse is saying when God has already poured out his grace to all humanity, for God so loved the world, when he's poured out his grace to all humanity, and he's been patient, and like Pharaoh, people have consistently and defiantly resisted God, ignored and dismissed God. God is under no obligation to continue to extend his grace and his mercy again. If he gives mercy again like he did Saul, that led to his dramatic conversion and change in his life, it is because he simply chooses to do so But I repeat, God is under no obligation to do so. And so, yes, 
God could have tried yet another time to wake up Pharaoh. But despite giving Pharaoh plenty of opportunity to do so, Pharaoh didn't change his mind. He didn't humble himself. He was unwilling to put his trust in God. And when Pharaoh's heart became harder and harder, and he resisted God more and more, at some point God said, okay, have it your way. And he turned Pharaoh over. After the fifth plague, God hardened his heart. And friends, this is why God doesn't save everyone. He simply won't force people to do what they don't want to do. Even though God is patient, wants everyone to be saved, there comes a time when it's clearly evident to him that a person's heart is hard and cold toward him and he turns them over. He passes them by and allows them to go the way they want to go. And make no mistake, those who don't respond to God's grace in this life while they're still alive, when they die, they will forever be separated from God and will have no one to blame but themselves. On the other hand, those who come to a point of brokenness and humility and reach out to Jesus and put their trust in him and as a result end up in heaven, they will have no one to praise but Jesus Christ because he did everything to make a way for us to become a friend of God. Amen? Amen. And then fourthly, God's sovereignty means that he, does, that he does give us a measure of freedom. In verse 19, Paul says, One of you say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Now that seems like a valid question. If God shows mercy to one person, hardens the heart of another, how can anyone be blamed for what they do? I mean, couldn't Pharaoh just say, Hey, I didn't have a choice in the matter. People wonder, is there really freedom? Or am I just a pawn on God's great chessboard of life? Well, we just learned that Pharaoh had freedom. He had a choice of either humbling himself and embracing God and trusting him or defiantly rejecting him. When it comes to our relationship to God, we all have a choice. And we're responsible for that choice. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, that, those are conditional statements, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, those people, he gave the right to become children of God. Clearly, God gives us freedom. He gives us choices, but there are boundaries and there are parameters of which you cannot go beyond. Despite what people might want you to believe, we do not have total freedom. <laughs> Let me illustrate it this way. When you board a cruise ship to sail, for example, to the Bahamas, you can sleep all day, 
Or you can eat all day nonstop if you want to. You can jog around the first deck. You can watch movies on the second deck. You can do shuffleboard on, play shuffleboard on the third deck. You can swim on the fourth deck. You can suntan on the fifth deck. You have a lot of freedom on one of those cruise ships. But here's the thing. There's nothing you can do to alter the ultimate destination of that ship. Well, folks, our life on this planet is little different. We are given a lot of freedom. But God warns us that in this life, we will reap what we sow. And in the end, we will all come to the grave. <clears throat> and we will need to give an account before God for what we did with Jesus and what we did with what he gave us. We can live any way we want, but there is no change in God's purposes, God's plans and principles. We can live any way we want, but once we make those choices, we are no longer free. In the same way, if you jump off Banker's Hall, which I'm not recommending, but if you jump off Banker's Hall, once you leap, you are no longer free. See, only God is truly free to do what he wants. He's accountable to no one. He does not need to ask anyone for permission. He never gasps and says, oh my goodness, I didn't know that. Or, my goodness, I didn't see that coming. He is totally sovereign. The truth is, in my little mind, I cannot reconcile how God is totally sovereign, totally in control, and yet I also have been given a measure of freedom to make decisions in life. I can't reconcile the two, but the Bible clearly teaches both, and therefore they are both true. And one day we will see clearly and we will understand fully. And then fifthly and finally, God's sovereignty means that God's way is trustworthy. We may not and will not understand all of God's ways, but of this we can be certain. God will never act contrary to his nature and character. God can do anything, but there are some things he cannot do. I caught your attention on that one. God cannot lie. God cannot be unjust or unloving or anything else that's contrary to who he is and what he's commanded. He may not treat us all the same, but he will not treat us in a wrong way. And so we can have total confidence that God's way is trustworthy, which brings us to verse 33, where Paul quotes from Isaiah 6, uh, 28, 16. See, I lay in Zion a stone, that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This ancient prophecy is pointing to Jesus and Paul says that there is a rock that you can either stumble over or that you can stand on. That rock is Jesus. And he made it possible through his death on the cross 
for all of your sins and regrets to be forgiven and through his resurrection for you to live in victory in Christ. Look at verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not obtained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith in Christ, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Paul paints a picture of a pathway that has a large stone placed right in the middle of the roadway. And all of humanity is walking toward it. Some people, like the Israelites, who are pursuing salvation by works, they stumble over Jesus and strive to make it on their own. Others, however, come to a place of complete brokenness and humility and realize they can't make it on their own, and they put their total trust in Christ, and they are saved. And Paul wraps up the chapter by saying, and the one who trusts in Christ will never be put to shame. You know, friend, there are so many things about God we will never figure out. And the truth is, we don't need to figure it all out. God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And he can be trusted. And so I want to close with just three brief challenges for each of us. First of all, rest in the sovereignty of God. Acknowledge that he is God and that you're not. Let go of your agenda and embrace only his agenda and his purpose for your life. Live to please God and God alone. Rest in him. Trust him. Furthermore, while there are many questions about God, we don't have answers to. At the end of the day, there's only one question we're going to be required to give an answer to. And how we respond to that question will impact not only how we live this life, but also the trajectory of the next life. And that question is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you stumble over Jesus because you believe grace is too easy? Or because like Pharaoh, you just simply refuse to humble yourself and to trust God with your life? Or will you stand on Jesus, the solid rock? If you really don't know Christ personally, or where you stand with him, you can begin a relationship with him right now. Just reach out to him in prayer. Ask him to forgive you, to come into your life. And then finally, for those of you who celebrate the amazing grace of God and how Jesus made a way for you and me to be a friend of God, I remind you that God did all of that for you and me for a purpose. And that purpose is to be the hands, the feet, the voice, the ears of Jesus in seeking his lost kids and introducing them to the Jesus that we know and love. My question is, who is God calling you to reach out to? 
not is God calling you to reach out to someone? Because if you're a Christ follower, he is calling you to reach out to someone. Who is it? Who's God calling you to pray for? Can you think of a person right now? Who's God calling you to spend time with? To serve, to care. And in God's time, to point them to Jesus. It could be the person next to you at work or at school. It could be a neighbor. It could be a family member. It could be someone in your community group or someone in our church. It could be a small group of children in our children's ministry. It could be a young person or a small group of young people that God's calling you to shepherd and to serve, to care. Friends, you may feel totally inadequate, but remember the Lord is with you. And he will not only guide you, but he will empower you to do far more than you can imagine. The God who was faithful then, he will be faithful now. I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and to go to God with these two questions. Lord, what are you saying to me through this message? And secondly, Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? Just take a moment with the Lord right now.